The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. I'm your co-host, Austin. And I'm your co-host, Ian. This podcast was created to provide you, our heroes, with new and reusable material for both players and DMs. We hope to inspire you with creative content that you can bring with you on your next adventure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we want to thank you all for joining us here today at Crit Academy Studios, where everything's made up and your roles don't matter. Yep, that's right. Your roles are like a world with no factions. You kind of need those. It's a pretty bland yep. world. It turns out they're pretty important, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, what a guest. Um, so I'm really excited for today's show. As you uh, just heard, we're going to be discussing uh, five tips for world-building factions. This is an article I found on Anvil, World Anvil. Uh, you can find a link to it directly in the show notes at critacademy.com slash post slash episode 205. Um, I'm really excited for that, but... As always, before we get into that, we like to start off the show on a high note, and we do that by giving away fat loot. We be making it rain on you guys, increasing your dragon's horde of D&D content. That's right. So thank you, Laura Smith. We <laughs> have today the Modular Dungeon Tile Set, specifically, though, the Arcania Set. Now, the Arcania Digital Tile Set lets you make dark, shadowy dungeon maps rich with the fumes of arcane secrets. So maybe this time you had found the Fallen Order of the Order of Light, who had their secret artifacts hidden away. Or maybe on the other hand, maybe you found the Order of Darkness, who is still thriving and very rich with their powers and the fumes of arcane secrets. Our winner today is... Uh, can't tell if it's an I or an L, but it be old. You're the winner. If you enjoy the product, uh, let Laura Smith know. Maybe check out some of his other content. Leave him a review. If you didn't win, have no fear. Head on over to CritAcademy.com and uh, subscribe Woo. for your chance to win. Um, and apparently, Alicia's blaming me. Yeah. Are you blaming me? What? Was it my oh. fault? <laughs> I don't think the cake is a lie. Um, so, yes, uh, we love giving away loot. So, um, on our the main topic today... We're going to be discussing, uh, we're discussing world building factions, five tips from World Anvil. Organizations are extremely important in any setting. I believe anybody can, can attest to that. And in fact, I think in fifth edition, they really did a good job of trying to give you a lot of core factions between like the, 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 the Harpers and the Zentarum. I was going to say any of the guilds in Waterdeep are, are superb, honestly. They're, they're all very different and they all are expanded well upon, so long as you have, of course, the acquired material for it, but right, they, right. it is there. Zantarum, Order of the Gauntlets, Emerald Enclave, Lord Order of the Gauntlets is the one I couldn't think of. All those people have hands in something, and whether it's guilds, governments, companies, or religions, they're all the ones who kind of rule over everything that's going on in the world. They set things in motion, they do things, and, they, and more importantly, utterly memorable for your players and readers, and give character to the world building process. Now, however, though, creating a whole organization can sometimes feel a bit daunting, right? Well, uh, in this episode, uh, as we're covering this uh, World Anvil article, um, we hope to avoid the generic factions and try to pick specific goals um, and give you kind of some techniques for that. Um, but it's important to not overdo it. Make sure that the goal's still open enough that the people within can still have differing opinions. Um, I think that's important because then that creates inner strife within the different uh, factions. Mm -hmm. For sure. So some world building factions with rituals. 
Uh, rituals and traditions are an obvious element of organizations like religions and cults. Mm-hmm. However, you can find them in any other or- kind of organization, too. For example, uh, politicians in a Congress session will follow a specific protocol. And if they don't, it's normally because they're choosing to express something through their actions. You can think of rituals and traditions as the way your faction tries to reach its goal, but it's also a way for your faction to control how others see it. Kind of like public relations. That, yeah, that's very much it. I think that um, when it comes to world-building uh, factuals, uh, factions and uh, rituals, I think that those sorts of processes can become uh, uh, an important aspect of it. You know, like... Um, the coronation or like, like <laughs> I don't want to get too political, but um, when you have, you know, like our Congress and our house, you know, they have a process to, to making laws and it has to go through these steps. That should be the same for your factions, whether it's um, selecting a king or a queen or mm-hmm. um, uh, making somebody a knight or um, give me some, 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 some more oh, ideas. <laughs> Or just even someone like like a small governing official, like a mayor or something. Like there, there's always going to be some form of uh, reason as to why they do these things as well. I would even say, right? Because they they do this because it's a sign of uh, progress throughout society or something. To like like this person is now shown to have this kind of ownership of this power or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Or maybe it's safe. <laughs> Maybe it's safer to do it this way, and that's why they do it. Who knows? Yeah, I the the last thing I really want to touch on this detail that I think is really important is that those sorts of um, uh, kind of processes can become targets of the adventurers. Um, yes. Things that they can try to like a chink in the armor. They can try to break those processes to push a decision one way or another. For instance, if you know that. Um, there's a succession in a political intrigue style campaign and with this group or this faction, um, this person is sick and ill and we know the succession is going to be this person. So a, the team has to kind of, um, become guardians or protectors or assassins of that person to help somebody else in succession, you know, become part of, uh, Mm -hmm. Put in control, and so that can become. I would say that focuses more towards the political intrigue aspects of D anD D than anything sure. else, because you're really trying to get into the nitty gritty of the rules and policies uh, mm. that that kind of govern those things. So when you do build a faction, think about something that's regular. You know, every four years we in America we have an election. That's a that's a process. So does your faction have something where every so often they change and vote on a new leader? Um, or they change the el- council elders, or they, you know, something. Uh, they do trial by combat to select their leader. Yes, even See, crazier. Maybe that'd be great for a, like a war, chi- a war, uh, uh, like a like a orc uh, tribe or something. Exactly. Yeah. They do. Are you still fit to be our leader? Are you still the strongest? Well, what challengers are there? <laughs> yeah. I've defeated them all. <laughs> all I see are bodies, so I must be still the strongest. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you let them hit the floor? <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right, uh, what's the what's the the next tip there, uh, Ian? Our next tip for this is rivals and allies. Relations between organizations are an essential part of world building factions. Make a list of all known organizations in your world and decide what kind of relationship they get with the factions you're creating. These mm-hmm. decisions will have an important impact on the world. For example, what does it mean if two rival factions are suddenly allied against a third faction? Think about power vacuums, too. They're a great source of conflict between competing factions. If you have many factions in your world, relationships between them could become difficult to remember. But, well, World Veil can help you out with this. Use the Diplomacy web feature to have a visual and interactive representation of your factions. Great way to check diplomacy in your world building. Yeah, um, so this is, this sounds very complex, but it's really not. Um, every single faction in any video game story has some sort of relationship to another one. When I played, uh, 13th Age, um, that you basically would have, like, one positive... Uh, or two positive uh, connections to a specific faction and one negative or neutral. 
And so what they're what they're talking about in World Anvil is there's this basically like a grid system, uh, kind of like a. a you, you ever do those, you know, connect the lines to the mating object in, like, school? I can't think of a good example. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You basically draw out boxes and then draw lines to the different factions and say, okay, this faction and this faction, they have maybe a positive relationship or maybe it's strained or maybe they're at war. And because they're at war, this, this uh, you know, faction two is now allies with faction three. Why did faction three join faction two? Because they're enemies of faction you know, five and faction five is now allied with faction one. And basically you create kind of a, like a, a brainstorm line chart that connects them with just simple descriptions of how they all relate to each other. Because very few factions of interest are kind of self isolated, right? Um, they, they do exist. Um, when I watch the, uh, the, the anime, uh, what's the prequel to Maggie? Uh, the Sinbad, Adventures of Sinbad. Yep. There's so, one, yeah. there's one group faction who basically lives in a mountain and they bordered off their, they built a wall <laughs> and they bordered off their entire culture and stopped trade and everything. So that would be kind of an example of a faction that's kind of not connected to others. But how does that, you know, affect them? Well, because they don't have outside trade, when somebody does show up, it's a big deal or their, right. their, their beliefs are really concerned strained and limited because they don't see other people um likewise if you go to faction what was it three who's now going to war with faction five because faction five is allied with faction one you you can kind of easily create okay these two are at war why well because they have this relationship there's no trade going to this other location which is starving people so now they're pissed that they're starving um or trade route was um Something I'm, I can't think of anything besides like a trade route. Do you guys have any examples? I was gonna say like even like uh, just just two factions believing that like uh, one of them is believing in a false god and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean that's a huge one in in fantasy, honestly, where uh, they're like, we don't believe that this had happened, therefore we're going to crusade against you, honestly. And it's just like, oh, okay, I guess this is how it is, and then they will fight until well one eventually one gives up <laughs> <laughs> or they're all exterminated or or they're all exterminated <laughs> <laughs> turns out that god was real and he just points his finger down and just craters everything <laughs> actually the sense that jumped out to me was think about a power vacuum too and the very first that's thing a I, good one and the very first thing i thought about and i won't mention what the faction is due to spoilers mind you but in the book series the dresden files there was they make it very clear that there's a lot of factions in the world. They don't tell you all of them per se, but there was one in particular that was a very large one, and it had a lot of like far-reaching worldwide influence. And during one of the book, the main character went, "I am the strongest faction." Quintus, screw them, and mm-hmm. he did outright destroy every single member of that faction, and and. And in the ne- wow. next book, when time came by, all I kids like, don't you realize what you've done when you destroyed them? Yeah, they were evil, but they had their hands in all of this. They're now gone. Do you have any idea how many more factions reared their head and caused more destruction than before? Because these guys kept all of these other factions in check? <laughs> yeah, uh, Bloodscore in the, uh, in the comments on Twitch says, uh, each faction should have a shared ideal and opposing ideal, then choose an ally, enemy, neutral, separate from those shared ideals. Not bad. Um, that really is uh, on point, and I think you make a good mm-hmm. point on vacuums because um, when somebody who's in control of something suddenly disappears, mm-hmm. whatever they were controlling is now in chaos. For mm-hmm. instance, uh, a good example would be like, you have a underground uh, rogue Robin Hood-esque group, right? They rob from the rich and give to the poor. Well, if the the, the evil uh, king who hates these guys decides I'm going to wipe them out and does so, well, now the food, the people that were getting the food no longer have it, so now they're starving. Does that lead to a revolt because now they're not able to survive? Um, there's always kind of those chain, chain events um, – <laughs> when you have kind of rivals and allies and everyone is kind of uh, got their good relations between each other or not so good relations, I suppose. Right. Um, but even, even bad people have um, influence over, you know, the good in the world, I suppose. 
actually, I just thought about randomly, right. too, where there was one issue of what, years back of the Punisher, who was going to kill the Kingpin in Marvel Comics, but then he realized very quickly, this might actually be a really bad idea. I mean, yeah, the guy has his hand in a lot of organized crime, not just in New York City, but far-reaching throughout the world, but as word was getting out that he was taking out Donald Kingpin, suddenly it caused escalation around the state of New York and became more chaotic, because there mm-hmm. were... Other factions getting ready to move in and take over. Violence was escalating. It's like, especially I hate this guy. He does establish an element of control, and things would actually would be way worse without him here. Yeah. So, um, I end up sparing him for that very reason. Another really good example is uh, in um, the Night Angel trilogy by Brent Weeks. Yeah, uh, there's one called the Sakage, who quite literally controls like almost every figurehead in the entire world because they're either going to assassinate them or protect them from themselves essentially because it's whoever is the highest bidder so if someone pays enough money to you know just kill this guy who could be this figurehead well that sucks for that guy right but chances are they already have stuff in place so it doesn't usually go too badly especially since the Sakage is kind of part of it, so they kind of always make sure stuff is in place to make sure everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. But one of their uh, their leaders had died, and next thing you know, the whole Sakage doesn't exist anymore, so now you have these extremely, absurdly strong master-level assassins who can use magic, and you're just like, well, what do we do with these guys? And they're all like, we're just going to do what we want. And that's kind of like that's what exactly kept everyone what in check. <laughs> so, that's yeah, a, good, that's a, a really good example. It's a great yeah. series, by the way, if you haven't checked it out. Very great series. So, it's one of my favorite. Um, so the next thing we kind of want to talk about is giving your factions personality. Personality isn't just for characters. Um, you know. True. Nope. In order to, 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 to really give it personality, bring it alive, for a faction, this is mostly how their members might look or sound or, um, you know, maybe the way they dress, uh, which social class they come from, what kind of training they have, um, and their general outlooks on life. Um, so, for instance, I think uh, the Dungeons & Dragons factions are a good example of this. The Harpers are uh, a group of... People who are all about getting information, right? And having this complex network of spies, basically. So, for instance, you know, you expect, like, the roguish type character to potentially be a Harper, right? Mm -hmm. You expect every Harper you meet to be that kind of, hey, psst, hey, come here. I got got some information I have to share with you. What? Oh, come here. (laughs) Um, Or or the old, uh, the old, uh, hey, hey. I got some, I got some news for you. It'll cost you though. But they're all about that sort of mm-hmm. scout. And I don't want to say scoundrelly, but roguish kind of feel. But then you got the yeah. Lord Alliance, which are all about doing the good holy fight, and they're pretty much like a generic paladin person. Pers- you always imagine them in armor and mm-hmm. I'm kind of patrolling the streets. I'm pretty sure that's or the gauntlet. But yeah. <laughs> oh, whatever. What did I? What did I call it? The Lord's Alliance. Oh, whatever. Totally I meant different. the one that they always walk around in suit, like like suit of armor people. Um, yeah, I was always imagining the the roguish type as well, with like ex- just kind of like heftier, like concealing mm-hmm. clothing, where they're always like it looks like they're just wearing layers upon layers of clothes, and you're like, what do they have under there? <laughs> and you never want to know. It's like the wizard when they ask for a skull from the rogue. It's like, I need a skull. Can you provide me? He's like, yeah, it's gonna cost you. So you have some. And he opens his jacket and there's like six. He's like, you don't ask? And that we're good. He's like, I'll take that one. <laughs> uh, Bloodscore in the uh, comments makes a pretty interesting point. He says, you know, real world f- faction example would be like sex of, you know, Christianity. They all kind of believe the same idea, but their individual interpretations cause a little bit of different view- viewpoints on how something should be done. Uh, in the article, uh, the World Anvil article, one they may actually mentioned uh, one of my favorite shows really does this really, really well, and that would be The Last Airbender. There yes. are four, four main factions. The, the, the nations can easily be identified uh, where the 
what type of character somebody is and where they belong based on the way they look and the way they, way they act. For instance, the Fire Nation is very ambitious and hot-headed. <laughs> I just I just got that. That's funny. Uh, always striving for innovation. That's you know, and that's why they've gotten the most advanced technology and why they've continued tried to to grow beyond their borders. Meanwhile, you got the Earth Kingdom that. Uh, they hit problems head on, you know, all about the the earth bending and everything, and they're known for their persistence and endurance. It's no wonder why they've been fending off the Fire Nation for so long. They they they're like rocks; they refuse to give in. And then, of course, you got the the water tribe that, or the yeah, the water tribes that adapt to the new st- situations and focus on strong community bonds, um, and which is why traditions are important. And then, of course, the air nomads; what's left of them are strong spiritual connection and believe in free. Freedom and pacifism, their, you know, spiritual personality makes them kind of, uh, um, kind of more relaxed and chill in most situations. And I think that I agree that the, that is a really great example of how a flat, well fleshed out factions identity can come through its characters. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you guys think? Having a unique personality for each one makes sense because each Faction has its own intentions. Each one has a type of um, agents and qualities they look for inside the agents. So that would make mm-hmm. sense how each one would dis- develop distinct qualities as a result. Right, right. I never it, really thought about it too much, but the uh, the Dai Li in Ba Sing Se mm-hmm. are totally like these like silent dudes. Also, can we just make like point this out real quick? Just because you're like an Earthbender and you you know you you think like stout and with honor, like. They made earthbending assassins. I just want to point that out real quick. <laughs> that that was like so cool, uh, and it was really well done by by the uh, creators of Avatar. But um, who doesn't they, love they a good do... a little mon- uh, mind modification, eh? Mm-hmm. It's fucking scary, <laughs> but it, it is something that uh, the last Airbender does really well is the fact that you can immediately tell and perceive that yes. This guy is probably part of the Fire Nation because just the way he acts among everyone else. Like even um when uh the gang went to the uh the Fire Nation, you could tell that Sokka, yes! even though they were under the same name, he very clearly stood out. Yeah. And even his name stood out. And his his trainer, who eventually trained him how to use a sword and whatnot, was very like you should just name yourself Lee. There's a million Lees. <laughs> <laughs> that joke makes it like three or four times through the series. It does. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's and it makes sense because I mean Lee was a common name, so it worked out, but it right. does it is really cool that um that even though like uh Sokka, who is clearly from the Water Tribe, is is trying to like blend in. Kind of blend in, right? And you can just tell that, like, he's not doing a great job, but he's trying, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, the last thing I want to kind of touch on this point is that uh, you'll notice that these aren't complex details. No. Each one of these is only two lines long, and mm-hmm. it's simple and to the point. And I think that it's easy to overthink how big a faction's description needs to be when it doesn't really need to be. You have a simple one or two lines of how they relate to each other, give some basic personality traits to that group of people, and um, make sure to remember those sorts of traits when you're describing somebody of that that, uh, faction. Whether it's as simple as wearing, uh, what is the, 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 a specific medallion, right? Uh, or the, or like, a an armband or something like that, uh, mm-hmm. a special sets of rings, something that's unique to that sort of culture and faction group. I know all the factions in D and D have like their own sigils and stuff. So, or like the watchers in Highlander have, a, they all have the same tattoo on their wrist. <laughs> yeah. Now there yeah. are, there are some risks that come with these descriptions, right? Austin. Hello, heroes. This episode is brought to you by our generous sponsor, Podcorn. If you don't know, Podcorn is an amazing marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and so much more. Yeah, actually, their mission is actually to give uh, podcasters some transparency and some creative freedom to uh, control uh, how they monetize things, actually. It's really cool. Yeah, it is pretty dope. And on top of that, you don't have to give up any rights for your podcast. And in fact, they are there to support you at every step of the way. 
and they also are there to ensure that you are protected and that you are compensated for your work. Which yeah. is actually really important for up-and-coming streamers yeah. or podcasters, anyone like that. Just like us. We, uh, trying to find sponsorships can be really challenging when you're smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so Podcorn really gave us the opportunity even to do this ad that we're running right now was only made possible by Podcorn. Explore your sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast right now. Head on over to podcorn.com slash podcasters to sign up right now. Do it. Do it now. Yes, uh, because it is, you do need to avoid character stereotypes. So it's critical to avoid these character stereotypes. If you've watched Avatar, you'll know that there are several characters from a single nation, but they all seem to have distinct personalities. I mean, you can look at Iroh or Zuko. They are very different types Mm -hmm. of firebenders, but they are even related. And they serve even like almost the same status of power, but they are very clearly different people with different Mm -hmm. ideals. And uh, they still don't feel disconnected from their home nation. They are still both very clearly firebenders, and they're both very driven people, just right. in different ways. Well, one's driven to drink tea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this means that the personality of a faction should be generic enough that it could be developed in many different directions. Mm-hmm. For example, a character from a community first faction, like the Water Tribe, could be a caretaker uh, a warrior that defends their village, or even have a xenophobic opinion. Everyone outside my community sucks. Uh, <laughs> use the faction as a foundation for the personalities of its members, but make sure to go beyond that. Uh, yeah. And there, it's, even in Avatar, there was uh, a good couple, a good few characters actually that had xenophobic opinions. Like even Sokka was, uh, he thought lowly of women at first. Not necessarily lowly, but he thought they weren't fit to do certain things. That it's he got their his job to take care of the kids, right? Right. And that, and that then... comes across a lot when he meets, uh, oh shit, what's the girl's name? Suki. Suki. Fans. Suki. When he Suki. meets Suki, who just whips his ass left and right, and he actually yeah. builds up a, a, a respect and realizes his mentality and stuff was wrong. And I think that was like episode three. It's really early on. Yep. They challenge it immediately. And and that's something that, you know, we talk about avoiding character stereotypes, but that's also an opportunity for character evol- uh, evolution, right? Yes. Where they start off one way. Maybe your character is from the Fire Nation, and just like Zuko, you start spending time with people that see the world differently, and you slowly begin to change. That happens to Vegeta in Dragon Ball Z, too. He's yes. clearly the evil bastard in the beginning. He literally blows up a planet the first time we see him. And uh, but as he hangs out with people from other uh, uh, other cultures, it, his perception being able to change. Sure, sure, he's a dickhead now, but he's not wantonly uh, want, just blowing up yeah, planets not, all wantonly. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Wantonly, he's not one. trying to kill everybody all the time. <laughs> right. So there are, if you do pursue those sorts of faction perso- personas. It can, it can evolve a lot more over time, especially if they're in your party or they're NPCs that the characters interact with regularly. Um, the reason I say this is I, I ran a uh, adventure for our patrons that was all took place in uh, shit. I can't remember it, but all the little red feathered. Uh, Soldiers were racist, xenophobic bastards. They hated them. Everything I got to say to my players, I basically picked on them for all their different racial features. And it came through as these guys are not only bad, they have no respect for anybody that's different than themselves. And so it showed that those groups of people and how they behave is consistent, but there were some that were less evil about it and just more afraid so you got to see okay people from this area aren't all bad some people are just scared because of what others say um and so when you're building your factions you can really leverage all that stuff together and and make for an interesting different cultures even if everyone is human um and that's the thing i think people forget is that you know a faction isn't just a um like a like a a kingdom it could be a specific like small little town or a culture and i'll admit even though like like i got the the main idea behind this tip and i don't think it's a bad one mind you but at the same time like i it's like but i don't think necessarily stereotypes are inherently bad either because i think a lot of them do exist for a reason they come from somewhere know what i mean 
And I do think it kind of gives you yeah. a template to go off of, which you don't have to apply whole, heart, hardly completely all the way through, but it gives you a basis to start off of, too. Right. I agree. And next one is use symbols for world-building factions. All factions want to be known in a certain way. That's where sim- symbology comes in. Symbols have two goals. To create a sense of unity within the organization, but also to influence how others see them. Think of the feeling you want others to have when they see a faction symbol, and then pick an element related to the faction that carries this feeling. And of course, it's not just the logo for the faction. Other elements, such as miles and anthems, are equally important. Like, one of the most iconic lines from Game of Thrones is, Winters is coming, for example. And you want more symbols? Talk about guild tools, holy relics, or royal regalia. (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading, uh, or I just finished uh, another Brandon Sanderson's book called uh, Elantris. Yep. And in it, in it, they have these Fjordans, which are these very religious zealot type people. But one of the ranks is Yorn, and they are recognized a mile away because they wear bright red metal chess pieces, chess guards with big billowing capes. That is a symbol of who they are, what they represent, and and their faith or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a faith, but yep. um, and it's very iconic in that world. Anybody that sees this guy walking around with his big red che- breastplate and his cape knows from a mile away that, holy crap, that's a Yorn. Shit is about to get real. Because those people are only sent to, I mean, he, this guy was literally sent to the city to convert everybody. That was his job. That's like, so having a, a, a symbol that represents something in your world gives it, uh, uh, gives a lot of power. Um, to that particular faction, especially if it's one designed to instill fear, for instance. Yeah, definitely like uh, like holy relics are an easy one to go to for mm-hmm. for most things, or even just necklace, just like a an insignia on on like a like a shoulder pad or something. A, a telltale sign, if you. Think about how you want these like people to be recognized. Are they bold people? Like then again, the bright red breastplate and the billowing cape will give them away, and that right. means someone is there. Uh, but maybe like think for like an an assassins guild or something. Like they're obviously going to be a little more delicate with how they reveal themselves. So maybe like it's just a simple like triangle tattoo. or something, or even a tattoo, like a certain In, uh... like. Uh, I think it's Sword Art Online. The Laughing Coffin basically had a tattoo on the bottom of the oh, wrist. Yeah, it was like that a they would, the wrist, yeah. They would like show it to people, um, mm-hmm. but they kept it hidden most of the time. But that's an example of a symbol because it has power and meaning. Yes, right? that's a very good one, actually. I, I like that one a lot. That was a very because like you knew when Laughing Coffin was there, you were like, oh fuck, someone's going to die. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> they, 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 and these would look like just ordinary people most times too. Like they, they yeah. didn't look particularly scary or anything. But you knew when they pulled out, like they rolled up their sleeve and the tattoo was there. Like, oh, these guys are Shit. bad. Uh, yeah, Blood Score in the comments makes a really good point. He says, um, it basically means that you can give your players objects with the sigils and symbols drawn and scribed on it, and kind of know. <clears throat> what that means, especially if it's a a big deal, right? Yep. If you know that the laughing coffin symbol is a huge deal and that it means assassins are coming, if that shows up, your players are going to be looking at each other like, shit, yeah, who's exactly. next? <laughs> like, so they're looking around at seeing who where the next body's going to fall because you're like, oh man, someone's going to die pretty soon. <laughs> and, and all that is going to come from is knowing that this symbol represents dangerous people. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Actually, two things come Spirit. to mind from those examples. Like, one of them is in the Wheel of Time. The, one of the main characters, Rand, when he left the village, his father gave him his old sword. We went on this journey. And the book is very clear that the sword had a heron mark on it, which, of course, you don't think anything of. But the character found out very quickly that that symbol... Is actually a symbol that is given out to blade masters. Oh, and so it so as he's walking around, actually, the few situations where like like we're about to happen, and some people see this, I'm like, wait, this guy's like, nope, we're good, man. He's like, that's what that symbol means. Followed by, where did my dad get this? Followed by, <laughs> why did my dad have this? Which makes you wonder a lot about his 
bother who don't see too much. You're like, what is this guy's background and what did he do kind of thing? Yeah, um, that actually reminds me, like, this is something that could apply to the players, too. In the show, we've talked to or talked about rewards that go beyond mm-hmm. just gold. And what if joining a a, a, a big popular uh, mercenary band has gives you clout? Um, I'm thinking like the Mighty Nine or something like that, right? They're the 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 um, Force Gray or something like that, where they have their own sigil. And if you walk into town wearing that sigil, either people instantly recognize, maybe not you, but understand what it means and treat the characters differently because they've acquired this sigil. Um, or Vox Machina, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I love it. Um, so. There's a lot you can do with these sigils and give these factions meaning and power. Even if you use the stuff that already exists in D&D, like the Harpers and the Lord's Alliance and all that stuff. I got one player in my, my monthly games who's all about the Lord's Alliance and he does everything he can. And he makes a big thing uh, a big thing of it. And you can do that with your factions as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Or, like, actually, this, uh, I started, like, uh, marathoning Hunter Hunter over the weekend. And a- oh, what a great anime. And one example Very I thought of, of symbols was was during one, one of the trials, they were had to fight some prisoners inside a tower, and one of the prisoners started bragging about how many kills he had, and when he threw off his cloak, had a spare tattoo on there, on his back, saying, yep, that's right, I'm part of the Fenton Troop, aka the Spire Clan, and the opponent's like, no you're not, what? Yeah, I am. Okay, first off, if you're really part of the Spire Clan, that symbol on your back will have a number on it, not just be a tattoo, and you were bragging about your kill count. The guys in these factions don't give a crap about their kill count because they've killed so many people. They don't care. <laughs> That's a, a good really point good too. point. That could be a great quest hook. Um, this assassin is group, like the spider shows up, a guy wearing a sigil, and now the characters are assigned to deal with it and turns out to be a fraud. And as you're about to deal the killing blow, a needle or a dart or something comes out from the trees and the guy keels over before he's about to reveal some sort of secret or something, you know? Um, I think that there's a lot to do with sigils and stuff, uh, symbols having power of powerful factions and then being utilized in the Brandon Sanderson's, uh, series, uh, Stormlight Archives. There's a secret, uh, organization known as the Ghost Bloods. And when their sigil is used, people recognize it. At least people that are in the... The no, the people that are in the know, right? And so it comes right. with clout, and one person actually uses it when she's not part of the Ghost Bloods. But when she does stumble across one of them, she says, "Oh, you're not with us, but you were per- you were perfectly okay, feeling comfortable using our sign, weren't you?" And she instantly is like, "Shit, how did he know that?" You know. So there's a there's a lot of fun to be had in that sort of faction detail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyways, let's world build. All in all, world-building factions are a crucial part of any story, both for the writers and the GMs and RPGs. But once you have these kind of five top tips in mind, you'll have factions that not only well-integrate into your world, but are also memorable personalities. Uh, Remember to connect your factions with the rest of the world. This will automatically make your world feel more alive. Uh, World Anvil has an organization template that you can actually use um, that can help gives you like prompts and questions to get even deeper in your faction design. Please check that out. There should be a link in the show notes. Um, they do amazing work. So Mm -hmm. make sure to, uh, take, take a, take a look at that stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think that will do it for our main topic today. Before we move on to our unearthed tips and tricks, this episode is brought to you by our generous sponsor, Cobalt Press. Dark fantasy material for the world's first RPG. That's D&D. Within these dusty pages, uncover the secrets of the world. Indeed, of the branches of the multiverse. Collected here are entire lost volumes of esoteric truths. Only for you in the grimoire... In the Warlock Grimoire 2. Dark revelations and wondrous testimonials of dark fantasy, monsters, and magic locals lore of Midgard. The Warlock Grimoire 2 
presents the content of issues 10 through 19 of the Warlock zine, which is awesome, by the way. I love covering this stuff on a few episodes back. It was really Mm -hmm. a lot of good stuff in there. Um, It also includes an entire issue's worth of new, never-before-seen lore and game elements for your game. So uncover the truths of the dark fantasy of Midgar campaign setting or for the worlds of your own creation. I'm telling you what, this book, I could not believe how thick it was when it showed up at my desk. Yes. Yes. It showed up at my house. I'm like, damn! (laughs) Lots of good stuff in there. Uh, Swing by. If you are going to check it out, please use one of our uh, sponsorship links. It helps them know that we sent you there. And now, what you've all been waiting for. Our Unearthed Tips and Tricks segment, where we bring you new and reusable material for both players and DMs. For our character concept, we have the Dark Sealed One. Once a loyal servant of the Black Wizard, you were sealed in a sarcophagus and stasis for safekeeping. While your master is now long dead, you live on. You're a terrifying nightmarish creature from the ancient past. Powerful, cunning, ruthless, enough to slay even the strongest of monsters. After emerging from your long slumber, you are the very embodiment of death and destruction. A reminder that there are things even monsters fear. Once (laughs) pledged to a life of service, with the original master gone, it is up to you where your loyalties now lie. (laughs) (laughs) I love this character concept, you guys. What do you think? I like it. It's always so fun. So... It's such a good trope. <laughs> this thing has been sealed away for a millennia. Oh god, it's free. <laughs> like my knee-jerk reaction oh, is man. I can see this like being a new character if you need it in the campaign that's either at mid to high levels, or that said, you could easily use it for lower levels too, saying, okay, this thing was was uh stored for so long, its power waned away is not quite what it used to be, but can build itself back up through time so yeah i i'm totally envisioning like a construct uh, a warforged or something in this oh yeah um would fit this theme or a tiefling you know something scary in nature just because of its description i actually thought of uh my, uh, my first thought was uh, i don't know if you guys have played fire emblem three houses but uh there's a guy who's in it called nemesis and he was a guy who was treated as a hero at one point and he fought the dragon goddess <laughs> Which was, you know, kind of an uncommon thing to happen in Fire Emblem to be treated as a hero for this. Because the Dragon Goddess was actually someone who was kind of, like, helping everybody. She was a figurative being who literally was trying to just save everybody. Well, mm-hmm. eventually, he killed her and used oh, her bones as weapons. Damn. <laughs> and then he was like, also, I'm kind of like a bandit king, so I'm going to start just doing whatever. And then they <laughs> sealed him away. And years upon years later, this organization came up and they freed him in hopes of making him take back everything and kind of reboot the world, because he was so powerful. Because he Jeez. fought a goddess. <laughs> and that's savage. Like, I don't know how to do that. And that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, he's just... He he has... Like, you have no master, and like now you're just a thing of wanton destruction. Now, that doesn't mean you have to play like that. You don't right. have to like, find the nearest civilian and be like, your head... Is clean off. Bye. That's why I needed uh, to have that last line. Yeah, it's up like, to you, you to, where your loyalties now lie. <laughs> like uh, maybe the group of adventurers found you, and now mm. you are playing this character, and you're like, "Who awakens me?" And they're just like, "We did. We didn't know it was in here. We thought you were trapped." He's like, "I was sleeping." <laughs> <laughs> you interrupted my slumber, bitch. <laughs> also, this would be a really fun to play an Oathbreaker Paladin too. Yeah. I would love it. That'd be a real. Real fun. I was having a really good dream. I was going to a great moment, and then you woke me up. You should now die because of that. <laughs> Bloodscore says, it could be something seemingly not powerful or scary, only later to show its true form. I think this would be great for a barbarian build. Because Ooh, that'd be fun. You're, you're, normal, you're normal self, but as soon as you trigger on the rage mechanic, your body shifts and alters and twists. Um, in some that manner that just fun. makes you terrifying, your strength power goes up, and you just have no fucks left to give. <laughs> yeah, it's time for that wanton destruction we were talking about. <laughs> right, right. 
And so it kind of comes through like kind of like that. Even the Hulk would be a similar example, right? Mm, yes. Where in Ban- Bruce Banner form, he ain't really nothing. But as soon as he changes, you're like, damn. <laughs> um, all right. I think that'll do it for our character concept, the Dark Sealed One. Our monster variant today is the Helgor, monstrous fiends with the form similar to that of a drake without scales. Upon its head are attached menacingly large horns, perfect for goring a foe. So, what you're going to do is you're going to take the stat block of the brown bear, and you're going to give it some new features. First, trampling charge. If the Helgor moves at least 20 feet in a straight line towards an enemy, um... It, the target must succeed a strength saving throw or be knocked prone. If the target is prone, the Helgor can now make a bonus uh, a gore attack as part of its bonus action. The gore, it just does a le- uh, 2d6 plus 4 piercing damage. And then you're going to have horn toss. When a creature hits the Helgor with a melee attack, it can use its reaction to attempt to shove its attacker. Yeah, I imagine it's just like throwing it like all those people that are uh, uh, fighting the uh, the bulls, right? Yep. <laughs> That's totally not inspired by this at all. Nope. <laughs> what do you What do you guys think? I love the things with gore in its name. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it it brings so much. Just it's just raw. <laughs> it's Gooiness. just gonna bring pain, and I That's love it. What do you think about that reaction? This reaction's awesome. That's something that's different. Being able to push him back or knock him prone, I think, is a, yeah. a nice little fun one. What about you, Ian? <laughs> okay, that's yeah. well said. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Blood score, describe it with entrails hanging from its horn. And it's all rotted, too, because it's from the last guy he gored. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. This it. sounds so much cooler than a brown bear. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> uh, all right, that'll do it for our monster variant, the Helgor. It, it, if you don't know, our Patreons every week get these fully fleshed out one-page monsters. It comes with backstory. It comes with lore and some beautiful artwork that I make for them. So if you like this sort of thing, I make a new one every week. So go ahead on over to patreon.com slash Academy and check out some of our tiers. See if there's something in there that tickles your dice. Now to the encounter of the podcast, Ghoulish Idols. Ghouls' attacks against local villagers and merchants are a growing concern to the village elder. Anban Seyo, a noble, an older graying man with a long face, believes the ghouls' strange idols may shed light on the creature's obsess- aggressive behavior, not obsessive. A few sent back notice that they discovered one that was glowing. She hasn't been heard from or seen since. The characters must first locate the idols and then investigate ghouls' idols and record their findings, but doing so won't be an easy task. The idols can only be found deep in the ghoulish swamp nearby. Oh, a few scouts sent back notice. Gotcha. Uh, The characters must succeed on a DC-12 survival or nature check to locate each idol individually. A failed check means an encounter with ghouls, followed by locating the idol. Upon discovering the idols, a successful arcana investigation check or use of detect magic spell reveals that some sort of necrotic power is emanating from the stones. During each investigation, the characters are attacked by a ghast. Yeah. Search and destroy mission, pretty much, what Mm -hmm. I gather. Um, kinda, so I kinda like this one because... It involves a couple different things. First, the party has to go and search for these idols. Um, mm-hmm. It's based on your checks, which I try to do a lot of those sorts of things. But yeah. I, it's left open enough that you can uh, expand upon it. Because you notice it doesn't say anything about why these mm-hmm. idols are all of a sudden emanating this necrotic uh, power. Right. Um, it could be that just maybe they stored it and they just come loose. You knock them down, they disappear, you take your money and you leave. Or maybe somebody turned them on right somebody mm-hmm. caused this problem you can really exp- i like i left this open-ended compared to some of the other ones because i feel yeah, like it's very open-ended it can give the dm a little bit more control over the normal kind of details that i write out um specifically because there's so many different reasons of why this the these stones are emanating power mm-hmm. um but it's pretty straightforward other than that this could easily be something that you could turn into, like, this is just, like, some weird one-off chance where, like, it's just a location, 
the stars aligned in some weird way and somehow this happened. Or mm. it could be something definitely much more further down the line where it's like, no, someone actually played a hand and tried to attack this village. Who was it? Who was here last? Maybe that's it. Maybe the stars did align, lined up right with all three of the stones that turned them on. So you got to move the stones, maybe? Just like, maybe, yeah, just, maybe just, just like, should be. you could do an intelligence check. Well, it turns out that these stones are in exact alignment at this exact moment with these stars. Barbarian comes over, picks one, throws it, and they all lose their power. <laughs> He's like, wait, destroying the moving thing was right answer you're just like yeah yeah actually for once he's like oh can i still destroy it <laughs> <laughs> can i blow it up oh <laughs> uh, that's funny. i like that one that's good all right uh, uh do you have anything uh ian seems to be a, a straightforward enough encounter with lots of things you can do with it so yeah looks good all right yeah. that'll do it for our encounter uh the ghoulish idols our magic item is Vision Dust. This wondrous item is rare. Blessed by the power of fate, this sparkling crystalline sand grants glimpses into the future. The dust stored inside the flask or jar when found contains 1d4 plus 1 ounces of Vision Dust. The dust can be poured out onto a liquid surface as an action. Uh, you can pour one or more ounces to cast one of the following spells from it. Augury for one ounce, divination for three ounces, and foresight for five ounces. Ooh. The spell consumes the dust during the casting. Hmm. Woo! That can be useful. I like how there's still a requirement where you have to find a liquid surface. Now, typically that might not be an issue if you have any sort of spellcaster, and maybe they cast Prestidigitation or something. Or Canteen. But, right. But, uh, I mean, if you're in the middle of a desert, might be a little hard to use. <laughs> well, so let, let's take a look at a couple different things. First of all, um, you have a chance of finding it with 1d4 plus 1, right? Yep. The mm. final spell takes 5, so the DM would have to roll that nobody has used any of the dust. Mm. Now, the augury is only like a second level spell. It gives you kind of some ideas of some might happen you might have a good day you might have a bad day that sort of thing divination gives you a little more direct contact as a fourth level spell but foresight foresight is a ninth level divination spell you touch a willing creature and bestow a limited ability to see immediate future and for the duration eight hours the target can't be surprised has advantage on attack rolls ability checks saving throws additionally other creatures have disadvantage in attack rolls against the target for the duration um, this so doesn't this is have huge. concentration. Yeah, no, I it just doesn't. Realized. Ooh. Um. So, this is something that it really, I really struggled to put a rarity on it because it does contain a ninth level spell. But the ninth level spell has a duration, and it isn't just outright blowing stuff up. Um, right. And in addition to Very that, utility heavy. In addition to that, there's a role that determines whether you can actually. Use it, because you notice there's no recharging. Nope. Yep. It doesn't come back. It's gone. So I, I really struggled with that. But I thought even if they happened to roll to find the item, happened to roll to find it with five charges, would they want to use it to cast Foresight? Or would they want to save it, save it for the multiple uses of Augury or Divination? Yeah. Um, it definitely leads to interesting uh, concepts and ideas as of consumable item as a, instead of just a potion. Right. Yeah. Divination, even on its own, is pretty good. Yeah. I, I do like that a lot. Yeah. It's not bad for fourth level. I, I do like that, uh, this item. I yeah. I could definitely see where you would struggle. I think very rare would still be a little too bad. If it had more charges, maybe I could see very yeah. rare. But 1d4, you got to get pretty lucky to get that foresight. Like, that's yeah. really. That's such. T- <laughs> Either your DM is generous, or your DM rolled, and he was like, "Well, shit, here you go." <laughs> so our, I like it. Yep, I like it. All right, that'll do it for our magic item, Vision Dust. All right, enough for our D- DM tip: delayed traps. And this tip comes from the Beverage Tea, one of our our patrons. Consider building traps into your dungeons and lairs. That have a delay. When the PCs pass by, touch, or manipulate various objects in the room, they trigger the trap. But the effect is delayed in a number of minutes, hours, or even days. 
This is a great way to catch characters by surprise, as they won't be expecting the trap in a location that they've already passed through safely. Or maybe illusions are created that they are, that are used to confuse, divert, or otherwise disorient the characters in another direction. Whatever the case, a delayed trap will catch them completely unawares. <laughs> this is awesome. It really doesn't happen that often, does it? No. I don't think I've ever done it. Usually traps are just kind of like, kill them immediately! <laughs> That's not true. I used something like this once, where I had a mimic take on the uh, form of a dead corpse, and, of course, Sticky Fingers yep. uh, tried to loot the corpse that got stuck to it. But other than that, I've never really... Uh, I've never really uh, thought about traps that come on on the way out. And if you think it happens a lot, uh, a good example would be in uh, um, the Indiana Jones flick, right? There's mm. traps that don't trigger until he removes the idol, right? right. Then he's right. got a big boulder chasing his ass. So, yeah, why wouldn't that happen to our adventurers where the trap isn't getting in, it's getting out with something? Yeah. <laughs> like, they don't care who comes in, but if you try to take the gold idol... Um, everything's going to flip a switch and you're going to be shit out of luck. And the players, I, I as a player wouldn't think to check for traps on the way out. Would you? Nope. Not usually. No, no, we don't We already want, we already walked through this hallway. <laughs> like yeah, it is a very good, like, Hmm. Either you're, either your players are being extremely cautious, which I haven't met any. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, Matt might be the closest one to being the most cautious, but right. I don't give him the breathing room to, to be cautious. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, it is something that you really don't think about. Yeah, delayed traps. I never... Even ones for days. Like, maybe... Uh, let's stick with the, the golden idol idea. Uh, you, you grab the golden idol, right? Nothing happens. You walk out. Nothing happens. You think it's really weird that somehow you stole this valuable object and nothing has happened yet. Until... Three days later, because it hasn't been put back yet, there's a curse that's on the idol. And the ward has finally expired because you removed it for too long. And thus, good luck. <laughs> I don't know what happens from there. Yep. But something like that. Dude, like You never really think about it. That's so genius. Because, uh, like, what if they need it for something, right? What if they have to show this idol that they are part of this temple or something? So maybe it's good for days. That's awesome. I just watched, literally just before this, while I was eating dinner, watched an episode of Supernatural where some kid took something from a haunted house that happened to have an evil spirit attached to it. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until the next night that he actually had to deal with the repercussions of it. So um, I think this is a fabulous Dungeon Master tip, and I will certainly be uh, including this uh, in my adventures moving forward. Ooh, or the sure. giant statues you saw at the front of the temple. Temple, you didn't think much of, but they activate on your way out because you have the items that Temple was designed to keep in there. Oh man, that would be awesome. I checked the statues. They're statues. They don't move. They don't blink. They don't do nothing. We're good, guys. Let's go. Yeah, that's a, again, that's a good one. That'd be awesome. I love it. All right, I think that'll do it for our Dungeon Master trip. Thank you, the Beverage Beverage Tea for Delayed Traps. Our player tip of the podcast is Don't, don't be, be a dick. dick. And today it is the role playing a half orc. Now, half orcs combine the best qualities of humans and orcs, though some would argue that the good qualities of orcs are few and possibly <laughs> hard to find. <laughs> From their orc blood, half orcs inherit great physical strength and endurance. They are fierce warriors, fleet of foot as they charge into battle. Their human blood makes half orcs decisive and adaptable. For all their good qualities, many half-orcs exhibit characteristics that polite society finds rude or perhaps undesirable. Half-orcs have little patience for complicated rules of etiquette or procedure and find little value in hiding their true opinions in order to spare someone's feelings. They enjoy the simple pleasures of food and drink, boasting, singing, wrestling, drumming, and dancing, and they don't find much satisfaction in more refined or sophisticated arts, such (laughs) as fine dining. Uh, (laughs) They're prone to act without much deliberation, preferring to overcome obstacles as they arise rather than consider every possible outcome and make contingency plans. Who needs those? Uh, These qualities lead some members of other races to consider them rude or even crass, but others find their brashness refreshing. 
Although possessed of many strengths, half-orcs frequently encounter prejudice in human communities. Mm -hmm. Thus, most half-orcs gravitate to careers involving physical labor or violence. For some, (laughs) the life of an adventurer is either a natural extension of that trend or a way to throw off the weight of prejudice. The adventuring life is also means finding a place in a group of allies and equals. A simple pleasure that is all too hard for many half-orcs to find in the world. So it's just like a warrior's guild or something, you know? You'd probably find a plethora of half-orcs there because why wouldn't a warrior's guild want a half-orc? Of course yeah. they would want a half-orc. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I just saw Bloodscorer's comment. Scroll of foresight. The target sees only the number four and everything. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> um, I, I love this roleplay tip. This is directly from the D&D 4E Player's Handbook. Um, this is something I feel like is missing from some of the newer content. Uh, yes. Actual descriptions on how really to get the most out of them. I mean, they have some, but um, this is one of my favorites right. because I think the half-orc is... It has a stereotype with it. Yep. But we overlook that <laughs> other part of the half orc. And I have a lot of fun playing into those stereotypes of the half orc characters to be real here. I know you do. You enjoy it a lot. <laughs> oh it's yeah. Awesome. I've actually um, been um researching a lot on like the older editions of D and D and like how because in current fifth edition uh, we don't really have a whole lot of what the higher powers really do. They just kind of mm-hmm. exist. And if you go back in like a second or third edition, like you find out like what all of the all of these things that had you know happened that haven't been like put into five E yet. So, yeah, um, it really does help to kind of go back in time and find a little more information on these older editions because they do carry a lot of amazing information yeah i think for better or worse they kept fifth edition open-ended but at the same time it's like but there's a lot of information that would have been really nice to have yeah yeah and i think this is some good tips i think that everyone gets a pretty good idea of the half work but i mean i didn't ever really think of a half work dancing or singing Mm -hmm. boasting definitely Um, and so that was, yeah, those are the sorts of things that you, you, you get, but the one thing I think you could really lead into is the fact that they have a, um, an attitude towards people because they're so used to being treated like, you know, poorly or, yeah. (laughs) And I think, I think what you can like, uh, get away from them being an orc, just like just an orc, you can say they have a lot more. They're just really passionate about what they do. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think that's like some a way you could role play that to give them that more half orc feeling instead of a, f- a full orc feeling. <laughs> right. And I think, like I said, that's the part that I think we forget about. Um, yes. Sure, they're a little bit, you know, not act without thinking sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. But there can be those occasional moments where their other half gets the better of them. Yep. And they do think, and I think in role play moments, those are the moments people will remember. Yes. You know, the one moment where Thorg the Barbarian <laughs> decided maybe it was a bad idea to sit on the rocket that was going to launch onto the back of a giant. Um, it, it worked, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it did. It did work, but anyways, um, I think that'll do it for our player tip of the podcast. Don't, Don't be, be a dick. dick. But we still have one more gift to give away. We do. And this gift is compliments of Jeff Stevens. Scourge of the Nightingale. Part 1. A Song of Love. A mass menace terrifies their region. The adventurers stumble into her scheme. The kidnapping of a famous performer known as Devin Artis. Their mission is to deliver a ransom and collect Devin. And today our winner is... David Barlow, 1963. Yeah, and if you didn't win, no problem. Head over to CreateCammy.com and subscribe for your chance to win. Why not? You might get free stuff. We like free stuff. Yeah. It's all free. We love giving away free loot. Um, blood scores. <laughs> God, I love this guy. Um, 
He says, maybe if someone searches a magic academy for scrolls, they should find misspelled scrolls that don't act quite right. I mean, it only makes sense that some students didn't get 100% on every assignment. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, admittedly, that's fair. Uh, all right. Uh. Um, please, please join us on our next episode. We're going to be discussing my dad's monster manual with James Introcaso. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. If you don't know James. Huge name. Tabletop Babble, all kinds of successful content on DMs Guild, has written a plethora of content for Wizards of the Coast. I am super stoked. Um, this whole monster manual, he basically showed pictures of monsters to his dad and then had his dad describe what they are. So it's all the, it's like all the monsters from the manual, but they get rewritten. Like, I'm pretty sure a beholder is like itty bitty or something like the size of a bowling ball. Um, it, it was, it's really cool. So I'm excited to talk about that as you can tell by the, my intonation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, one last thing I want to say, um, for those of you guys that are watching live or watching before we do our next game stream, which is on Friday. What day is that? That is going to be Friday the 29th on Friday, the 29th at 7 PM right here on Facebook, YouTube, hopefully twitch <laughs> um we're going to be running vigilantes and villains it is a play test for a 5e superhero rpg um based on the fifth edition rule set so i'm really excited i've put a lot of work into making sure the overlay and everything's pretty and we're doing a, a world building through play by post in our discord so I hopefully you guys will come and join us for that. Um, there's, as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of those, nope. and so I'm really excited. We did a play test, and it was really, really fun. So hopefully yeah. you'll come join us. Good stuff. Yeah. And if you enjoy the show and want to support us, visit us at CritAcademy.com and follow us on all of our social media and leave us a review. We tend to be uh, pretty active on our Facebook on Crit Nation and Crit Academy, so. Feel free to give us a follow there because we do post some funny stuff every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> the remembered realms. <laughs> have you seen that yet? Yep, I have. Yeah, you got this good. big old map of forgotten realms, but for some reason Wizards of the Coast only focuses on this one little sliver. It's called the yeah. remembered realms. <laughs> uh, well, I think that'll do it for our show today. I am your host Justin. I'm your co-host Austin, and I'm your co-host Ian. Thanks for listening. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.